Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now and everybody knows he's ready to fire on the first one bases loaded young swings line drive that is down and to the wall Cruz is in pierce is in hardy rounds third and he's gonna try to remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks me james and I may have an ERA higher than the 2014 Detroit Tigers playoff bullpen, but I do not have a co-host with me this week. However, that does not mean that I'm alone. That's right. It's me, the very special guest, Xavier, taking over Diaz's spot because, you know, we just swapped in one Puerto Rican for another. It's fine. It, it happens. Yeah, we figured once I made the mistake once, it's not like anyone that listens to us won't also make the mistake. So, Xavier, thank you so much for keeping Diaz's seat warm. And I, I'd like to thank you in advance for what's about to happen, which is... You tell me what's making memories for you right now. So there's a lot going on right now, but I do want to give a little bit of a shout out to, I, I don't know how often this has happened. Maybe it's more common than I have thought, but every single conference final in both the NBA and NHL at least went 3-0, which... It is, uh, it's never happened in basketball. We almost had it happen for the very first time, sweeps in both conference finals. That still has never occurred. God willing, in the creek don't rise. The heat take care of it with the gentleman's sweep, but uh, we shall see. However, sorry, please continue. Yeah, we we had the Nuggets sweep the Lakers. We had the Florida Panthers sweep the Carolina Hurricanes in battle of teams that people in that state don't even care about. Vegas Yo, is up. I want to give credit to Carolina. Uh, uh, okay, Canes Carolina, fans are real. Canes fans, Canes fans, are real. fans do exist, but... I hate the Canes as a concept because I loved the Hartford Whalers and wish they still existed. So I, ha- I, I, I do not want to give the city of Raleigh any, any credit for having the Hurricanes, who should still be in Hartford. But So thank you to Chuck for sweeping them for me so I didn't have to deal with them. We had those sweeps. Vegas is now up 3 nothing on the Stars. And without Jamie Benn, who he pulled at me when I used to play rec hockey, and just got pissed off at going down early and attacked someone and is now suspended for the next two games, which will mean he'll miss the sweep and then the first game of next year as the captain of the Dallas Stars. So not great. So Vegas should sweep them. And the Celtics did just narrowly avoid being swept a couple nights ago. But by the time our dear listeners hear this, hopefully they will be gone. we get to have an entire offseason of, okay, it's all Joe Mazzula's fault. If only Ime Adoka kept his dick in his pants, they would be a championship team. Do they trade Jalen Brown? And I will enjoy watching our good friend Matt Rigo die over that in our, gr- in our group chats. I usually like competitive series, but almost all sweeps was very interesting to me. I had to look up Jamie Ben real quick. You mentioned them because I was like, how fucking long has Jamie Ben been around? Jamie Ben has been playing time. for the Stars since 2009. There's He's one. 33. There, exactly. And there's exactly one non 
Stars related team because when he's briefly been in the AHL a couple times, he's been with the Texas Stars. But the only non Stars team he has been with since the 2009 2010 season, during the 2012 lockout, he briefly played in the German league for the Hamburg Freezers and oh, won Player of the Month for his one month there. So I just wanted to drop that in about Jamie Ben real quick. No, I mean, like, truly, please do not let these Celtics pull off a 2004 Red Sox. And also, hey, credit to Miami, currently more or less the center of the sporting world. How many people know where Sunrise, Florida is? Roberto Luongo is at least one. So there you go. How many people who have not played for the Florida Panthers know where Sunrise, Florida is? That's an excellent question. I don't know. <laughs> just all of Miami just counted as one spot. It's fine. Broward County, Miami-Dade County. Make them all one. My grandmother lives in Broward, so she might take offense to that. But the Florida Panthers do not play in Miami or Miami-Dade County, for people who did not know that. They play they- in the suburbs. The Marlins are in Miami now, right? Like, I know they were Miami the, the Marlins Marlins are in Florida, but since they've been the Miami Marlins, it's yeah, been they are in, So there you go. They are in Miami, but yeah, Sunrise is north of Miami in Broward County. It is a suburbs team, just like the not-Atlanta baseball team, the Cobb County baseball team. One last thing on the topic of the Miami Celtics series before we move on to anything else you have, I do have to say, uh, Shaq finally got served subpoena papers for his role in the whole FTX thing. <laughs> and it was in Casilla Center, which of course was briefly FTX, FTX Arena. Arena. So in former FTX Arena, someone served Shaq his papers. Uh, that's just fucking great. Anything else for you, man? Yeah, I'll give a quick shout out to the U.S. under-20 men's national team who are currently in the under-20 World Cup. Surprisingly enough, U.S. actually really good in the under-20s to the point where because of their performances in the last four or five, they were in the top pot for, like, seeding. And so they got seeded with Ecuador, Fiji, and Slovakia and have already beat Ecuador and Fiji. So they have made it to the knockout rounds. If they beat Slovakia as well, they will have one of the best seeds in the knockout rounds. They have a really good team, even though some of their best players who are over still playing in Europe, their seasons haven't finished yet. So they have like three or four top players joining solely for the knockout round. So the fact that they've already got there means that their team will already be better once they get to the knockout stage, but they could you know, win all three and then get better players added to their team. So be excited to see how far they go especially since the rest of the soccer season is pretty much over. The last week of the Premier League will have aired by the time that our listeners hear this. Our good friend Kevin will be enjoying a fifth Manchester City title in six years. Diaz is going to be celebrating Newcastle Champions League and could be gloating over good friend Bobby if Newcastle do finish ahead of Manchester United. But there is other soccer, and youth soccer is really good, actually. So watch it on Telemundo. That's who has the rights, and it's great to watch it in Spanish. Sí, sí, sí. Por supuesto. God, the 2026 World Cup logo is terrible. Uh, it's but so it is stupid. Not... <laughs> it's so dumb. <laughs> it is not the only questionable design choice recently. The Baltimore Orioles City Connect jerseys finally came back. They, they're a lot less terrible than I thought they were going to be when I first saw the leak. And I don't want to talk about them too much because, again, this is an audio medium and it's pretty difficult to discuss that. I do, though, want to share just a little bit of the copy with you, Xavier, and with you, dear listener, uh, because I don't know if you know this, but the city of Baltimore has pioneered many of America's finest inventions, so it comes as no surprise 
that they are the first MLB team to design the inside of their jerseys. Just uh, another <laughs> example of the constant innovation going on in the city of Baltimore. But of course, the number one innovation is on the field in Baltimore. The Orioles are a very mixed bag this year. They are the most infuriating 100-win pace team that I've maybe ever seen in my life because if they maintain their current pace, they will have had more games decided by four runs or fewer than any of the previous 254 teams that have made the playoffs during the wildcard era, which is why I really don't want to get too much more into their performance because... I don't think that jinxing is necessarily all that real, but when the margins are as slim as they have been for these birds this entire season, I'm not taking any chances with that. Particularly given that something that you and I can both relate to, Xavier, we root for teams in the AL East, as people may have gleaned by now. Do you know what the full season record for best out-of-division winning percentage all time in Major League Baseball is? Or what year it was set? Do you have any guesses about that general record? Best out of division winning percentage. Knowing you, is it 690 as the winning percentage for best? No, no. You think a single division won more than two thirds of its games against other opponents? There could be a year. I mean, especially back in the 60s when some teams were literally just feeder teams to other teams. It wouldn't have surprised me if that happened. True, but Uh, you only had two divisions back then. All right, let's go go like 570, and it was the AL East probably last year. Xavier, it was the 2022 AL East with 577. Fucking incredibly done. Let's go. Incredibly done. So just last year, the AL East won over 57% of its games against non-AL East teams, and then... Schedule changes came in during this year. We're going to play all the teams, two series fewer. And the rest of the league seems to not be all that happy that they have to play the AL East this much more because entering today, this is May 25th that we are speaking, Xavier and I, it has been 161 games played by the AL East against out-of-division opponents. Nearly a full season's worth of games at this point. And the AL East during that time has gone 105-56 and for a 6 52 win percentage. Yeah, the AL East is really good. It, yeah. Like, yeah, it is. Three of the top six records in, in baseball right now. James has been despondent over the Orioles, who have the second best record in all of baseball. Yeah, who would have thought? It turns out that the only thing worse than being in a baseball group chat with me when the Orioles are terrible is being in a baseball group chat with me when the Orioles are just like, pretty okay. The, the, the Blue Jays are 2-8 and eight over their last 10 games and still have a winning record and would be pretty much in the division race for any other division, but instead are already 10.5 back. Look, man, it's fucking brutal. I'm not going to pretend it's not. It's why I refuse to rest on any laurels. I uh, certainly hope the Orioles have not made me look like a big fucking idiot by the time this comes out, but I do love them despite how many heart attacks they give me on a daily basis they're going to try and kill me one of these days but they've not succeeded yet though on that more somber note of mortality there's exactly one last note that i want to share tina turner passed away this past week and she had a sports connection that i was unaware of i want to give credit to james dater uh, for sb nation who wrote an excellent piece on this in 1989 Tina Turner, she's coming right off the heels of mad max thunderdome so she's got a little bit of an Aussie connection there. <laughs> 
She also has a bit of an Aussie connection through her manager, Roger Davies, who is from Australia. And Roger Davies, he approaches her at some point here in 1989. And the time she did, you know, big cover by Welsh singer Bonnie Tyler. This is, in parentheses, simply the best. The song is just called The Best, but we all know it is simply the best. And he approached her to see if she'd be interested in this becoming the theme song for Friday Night Football, which in Australia, for the record, is a rugby program. It is not our football or Aussie rules football, but it is one of the biggest consistent broadcast programs in the country of Australia. Shocking to both Roger Davies and all of the people behind Friday Night Football. She was totally game for it. And so simply the best became like the theme song very much a la Carrie Underwood with, because uh, Carrie Underwood do Sunday night or Monday night football? Sunday night, right? It's waiting all yeah, day for Sunday night. Sunday night. Yeah. Yeah. So that was basically what Simply the Best has been for Friday Night Football since 1989. There have been several iterations of it, maybe the peak in 1993. The halftime show for the grand final, which sounds, it makes me think that actually Super Bowl is not that uncreative of a name. Uh, she did perform the halftime show, 45,000 Australians screaming the song along with her there in the stands. She was even invited into the winning locker room afterwards, where she was serenaded by the relatively dirty and in various states of undress winning rugby team. But that was something I was totally unaware of that she had that sports connection. So you know just what else to that highlight. song was a yes. was big was big for? It was the theme song of the New York Rangers in 1994 wrote the Stanley Cup. Well they hey, played it. Fuck you, man. They played it over the PA in the garden as Mark Messier lifted the Stanley Cup. Cool. Hey, Vancouver here. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> I had to do it. I had to do it, but um, I, I, I do, okay, fine. As long as we're doing it for Tina Turner, it's fine. Doing it for Tina Turner. I, that that is that is very cool to hear. You know, R.I.P. Tina Turner. There was one other thing I wanted to bring up that I had forgotten because WNBA schedule is weird, and the Liberty have not played in five days at this point, so I had nearly forgotten. But Brianna Stewart in her second game as a member of the Liberty. It set the single-game points record with 45, only playing three quarters against the Indiana Fever. She could have easily broken 50, which would have shattered like the record by double digits. But, oh no, just her first home game, second game with the Liberty. I'm going set to a, set a record. And this is only one week after her and her wife, Marta Zagre, announced that they were expecting their second child. So, you know, she's got that big mom energy right now. I, for one, would have welcomed her knocking that record out of Liz Cambage's hands. So we'll just have to wait and see if she manages you again. Man, that New York Liberty, that is going to be the greatest second place team in WNBA <laughs> history. And speaking of things that are in second place as of the time of recording this, back to the Orioles for a moment, because we do have another guest joining us this week while Diaz is off in parts unknown. We are happy to bring back to the show our good friend Connor Newcomb, who's going to go ahead and bring a guy to the guy bunal today. And I think we're going to throw over to that right about now. Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else, we have with us an ornithological expert. Our first returning guest of the calendar year, local Baltimore man joining us once again, Connor Newcomb. How's it going? It is going great. Um, expert, I think I know about two birds, but I'll take, I'll take expert. Well, you know two birds very, very well. Your, your knowledge is deep, if not broad. 
I'll take that. Yeah. And, and, and one bird more than the other, I would say. But yes, I'll take it. It is great to have you, Connor, our friend from Locked On Orioles of the Locked On Network. I got to ask, if, if you don't mind me starting off, how does one get into the daily podcast for a single team game? What, what is the story behind kind of getting sucked into this larger network? Well, some people don't know. I am not actually the original host of Locked On Orioles. Um, Justin McGuire, who does a podcast called Baseball by the Book, where he reviews baseball books, he used to host this show during the 2018 and 19 seasons, which uh, you can imagine how dark it must have been for him to host an Orioles daily podcast during back-to-back seasons when they lost a good amount more than 100 games each year. So he smartly got out of it. Uh, And that was back when the Locked On Network was kind of expanding to all teams, I believe, around 2017, 2018. I saw an opening in uh, late 2019. They said, hey, we're looking for an Orioles host. I said, I'm a freelance broadcaster. I've got some time in my schedule to take this on. Let me apply. They said, looks great. We'll bring you on. They interviewed me and hired me. And uh, I came on board in January of 2020. And uh, we know what happened shortly after that, podcast daily-wise. So I, I stuck out. But uh, that was that was really how it went. A lot of people think because I've been doing it for three years that I just started the podcast. Like, no, 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 we're part of a larger network. And Justin had a, a little base of listeners for me when I got there, which was definitely nice to start with. I have to uh, imagine, I admit I was not part of that smaller group, but I do love a number of different populations that show up in Orioles fandom of the people that did manage to stick around through the entire things. I'm, I'm impressed that you went into this with, again, 200 plus losses in the years prior, not scared to take on talking about this team every year. 2020's outlook wasn't a lot better. No, no, it, it was not. I think what made 2020 okay is that it was only a 60 game season. And because it was so short and they won a couple games early, they were in the playoff race for like 45 of those 60 games. Because remember, MLB was just like, all right, everybody gets in the playoffs. Like COVID year, everybody's in the playoffs, except for the Orioles. But that made it digestible. And really the only bad season I got was 2021, like bad full season where it just became like a grind at the end of it. And they had the worst record in baseball. But I did, I I will tell you both, uh, I talked to a lot of minor leagues in 2021 and then things started to turn around a little bit. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned the grind there, because that was uh, something I wanted to ask about a little bit, because being a baseball fan already is a grind, and talking about any team, even good teams, on a daily basis for an extended period of time is a grind, especially with a sport like baseball where you have a different hero every night a lot of the time, particularly for, say, a bad team where like it's going to be a different hero because there's no consistent person. Everyone's equally terrible, and someone might just pull it off one evening. But with that kind of like constant turnover and this nose to the grindstone lifestyle, was it hard to kind of look at the uh, larger picture of guys over a full season versus having to get super granular into it? Were you able to appreciate like those year long narratives as much as kind of the stuff that we often focus on with the stories? Yeah, I think there were there were really three year long narratives that got me through at least 2021, I would say, in that really bad season. It was Cedric Mullins, you know, going 30-30, breaking out, being an all-star. That was the whole year, basically. The second one was Ryan Mountcastle, like first full big league season, hits 30 homers, like, you know, gets AL Rookie of the Year votes. And the third one was John Means because the no-hitter was pretty early in the year. So he threw the no-hitter in May, and then every time after that, you're sitting there watching like, could he do it again? And so that was pretty much like the aura of trying to stay positive around every time he pitched. But it's funny, like, you know, pulling up the 2021 Orioles Sporkle, behind those three guys, 
just the roster churn. And and I I realized looking back that I was probably talking about a roster move, at least for one segment of almost every podcast, I feel like, because some guy came up, you know, took a beating for three innings, gave up five runs and a loss, got sent down, and some other dude you never heard of came up again. So that that did make it tough, but I think Cedric Mullins was, was the saving grace of that season because even the eyes of baseball outside of Baltimore were kind of on him for that 30-30 year, and that made things a little more digestible. Yeah, everyone got to see his Naruto shades at the All-Star game. Still a highlight of the season for me, Xavier. I don't know if you have any other Cedric Mullins memories, but I, I do hope that he could win even you and your pinstriped harp over a little bit with that. I liked him hitting for the cycle the other day. That was fun. I did I like was... him hitting for the cycle very much. It's kind of wild that we've had now three in the past, I think, four or five seasons. I don't remember yes. when VR was exactly. Yeah, VR was 2019, Hayes 22, and Mullins 23. It's it's crazy to have that long of a of a tenure, and, and you're really in, in kind of a rebuild, and you're, you're hitting those that many cycles. It's it's a very random thing, you know, because like if you hit four homers, that's way better than hitting for the cycle. If you hit four doubles, that could be considered better than hitting for the cycle. But people care more if you hit for the cycle, so it's kind of a random thing. But I was actually in the ballpark Friday night, so I got to see my first cycle. Apparently. Live. Everyone was like, I was on vacation still with my wife and on our honeymoon, actually. And every single person that I know texted me that night while we briefly had service, just telling me that they happened to be at the game that evening. So I'm very happy for everybody that I know seeing that happen. Good, good crowd. Good vibes. Cedric for the cycle. Awesome moment when he came out to the field by himself. Uh, the rest of the Orioles kind of let him out there to get a standing. Oh, that was awesome. Love that they were able to set that up. And uh, I'm glad that for a moment there, you also mentioned the rebuild. You've once again teed me up greatly because seemingly, despite my constant cynicism and uh, anxiety about the other shoe dropping, it seems like they have exited the rebuild. And do stop me if this is, you know, aping any of your content later on. But I wondered, uh, as an Orioles fan, is there any one guy from this past period as we move out of it that you think you are going to remember a little bit more that maybe uh, deserves some recognition here that might not get remembered by the wider public as much. Any name you want to leave us with? Yeah, I think Hanser Alberto is is one of the guys for me. Um, that is the correct answer. Yeah, I didn't know just... what it was until you said it, but that is the 100% correct answer. Left-handed hitting God Hanser Yeah, hit, hitting what, 398 against lefties in 2021. He was the other kind of full season story in 2021 was him doing that. You know, he pitched a little bit. And remember, he goes to the Dodgers last year. He pitched like 12 games for the Dodgers last year. Uh, but he could play second and third. And he had a five-hit game that year. I mean, he was fun, too. Like there was He had a, a lot really... of positional eligibility in fantasy baseball. Yeah. He was a very sought-after asset for a little bit in the trash can league. Yeah, he uh, in 2020, I remember there was a video of him. Uh, he had come back into the dugout. And, you know, this was this was peak COVID playing 2020. And he was like spraying down the bench himself and wiping it off. Uh, Masson caught him doing that in the dugout. So just kind of a fun guy to have around. I mean, there's multiple guys that come to mind, but Alberto is number one up there. Orioles legend Hanser Alberto. That is absolutely the correct answer. And I'm glad that we can give him a moment here to be remembered on the show. But he is not the guy that you have brought to us today. Our partial guy, Bunel, is here to review the case of someone I don't know yet. I might not even be baseball. Far be it for me to assume, but given the number of Orioles things behind you, I assume it will probably be of those old rounders. Yes, it is baseball. And technically, technically, as I start here, this person is still playing baseball. 
Now, it depends on you know, what you define as a high level of baseball or not. But this man at 46 years old is still playing baseball and technically still playing professional baseball. But if you looked back on his career, how it started, what happened in the middle, you pretty much would never have thought that this would be a guy who would rival Julio Franco and Jamie Moyer with you know how long he's playing the game professionally. Because this guy barely made it past college baseball. Now, it started off well. High school kid from Texas. He shows up on Texas A&M's campus in 1994 as a baseball player. You're thinking, all right. Back then, they were a Big 12 team, but still a great baseball program. You got a scholarship to go play baseball. Things are starting pretty good. Unfortunately, he did not stay there for long. It was Texas A&M. It was then, let's see, Lee College in Oklahoma. I'm sure many have heard of the prestigious Lee College. Thank you yeah. for including the state there for uh, everyone else who didn't yes. know that. You know, I clearly did, but right, uh, for right, everyone right. else. Uh, he did play baseball there, but wasn't at Lee for long. Then it was Seminole State Junior College in Florida. Again, you know, very well known. Before finally making his way to Dallas Baptist. Now, if any college baseball fans are listening, you're thinking, oh, Dallas Baptist. You know, he ended up at a really good program. Well, Dallas Baptist in 1998 had not yet transitioned to Division I. They were still a Division II program. Now, they were a Division II powerhouse back then, and that is why they eventually went to Division I. And Dallas Baptist is now known as one of the better kind of mid-major schools and programs in college baseball. But back then, he went from Texas A&M, four schools later, he's at Division II Dallas Baptist. And he played well there, finally. As a senior, he hits, well, I guess a redshirt junior. He hits 507 in his first season at Dallas Baptist. Red 507. Junior. Pretty good, 507. You would think even at Division II, some scout out there sees 507 and says, all right, this is a great Division II program. They had had players drafted before him. Nope. And back in 1998, the draft was 50 rounds. Was not selected <laughs> in 50 rounds. So this guy said, all right, well, I've transferred a bunch of times. I got one more year of eligibility. Let's run it back at Dallas Baptist. After over 1,500 players were selected in the draft that year, and he yeah. was not one of them. He said, ah, let's run it back one more time. So he didn't hit 507, but he had another great year. And the next year, he was drafted. 12th round by the Boston Red Sox in 1999. Now, you could say, oh, not drafted in a 50-round draft of the 12th round. He must have gotten much better. He was what they call a senior sign in the MLB draft, which is MLB draft is very money-based, whereas the NFL draft is very you pick the best player or someone who fits your needs. MLB draft is very we're going to go over slot with the bonus here. We'll save some money here. We'll toss things around. When you see guys who have been four- or five-year college players go in basically rounds 10 through 20, you call them, especially back in the day when it was 40 and 50 rounds, those are senior signs. That probably means that in the seventh round, you went over by about $100,000 paying somebody to try and get them out of college and get them to the pros. So in the 12th round, you had to save money by drafting a guy who has no eligibility left and has no other choice but to sign for $2,000 in your signing bonus. It's one of the ickiest parts of the draft system. It's been fixed a little bit, actually, by the shorter draft. One of the kind of better parts of the 20-round draft now. Still don't love it, but he was a senior sign. So he gets into the Red Sox system, and 
actually a great start to his minor league career. He hits 315 in A ball in his first full year in 2000. That was enough for him to be a player good enough to be traded for a big leaguer. So in September of 2000, he is dealt from the Red Sox to the Minnesota Twins for 30-year-old right-handed reliever Hector Carrasco. I did want to pause and have Hector Carrasco be the honorary guy of this episode because Hector Carrasco was traded from the Twins to the Red Sox to try and help them, I guess, get to the playoffs that year. He promptly had a 9.45 ERA down the stretch out of the Red Sox bullpen. They did not re-sign him, and he went back to the Twins. He just said, well, this was working out much better in Minnesota, so he re-signed with Minnesota. So the Twins, they made out amazing in this trade. They got a prospect, traded away a reliever, and the next offseason, they got him right back. Now, Hector Carrasco wanted to shout him out because he is your classic journeyman reliever. Seven teams in 12 years, signing one-year deals all over the place, bouncing around to different teams, pitched for the Orioles in 2003, pitched for the inaugural Nationals in 2005, pitched until he was almost 40 in 2007. But uh, I digress. This is not about Hector Carrasco, but I, I don't think I had heard of him before uh, doing a little more research on my guy today, so did want to shout him out a little bit. Yeah, I, I certainly could not have told you that Orioles legend Hector Carrasco exists, but we know that now, and he yes, has a spot in our hearts. Go O's. Ooh, that's like right when Bruce Chen gets there. That's a particularly yes. rough time. 2003, yes. This was pre the good first half of 2005 when people thought the team was was pulling it back together. Uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a pretty dark Orioles time. But my guy, the trade to Minnesota was actually the move he needed. He tore through the twin system. He hit at double A, he hit at triple A, and on May 29th, 2003, Lou Ford made his major league debut for the Minnesota Twins. Now, he was pretty good. He hit 329 as a part-time player, and then in 2004, dude hits 299 with 15 homers and about 600 plate appearances, and somebody puts him on their AL MVP ballot in 2004. <laughs> he finishes 24th in AL MVP voting in 2004. And the Twins are thinking, we gave up a nothing middle reliever for this eh prospect, and he's getting MVP votes? And we got, yeah, got the reliever back. Yeah, and got the reliever back. I mean, the Twins were, I mean, they were walking on sunshine. I mean, they were thinking, as long as we don't have to face the Yankees in the playoffs, we're going to be set <laughs> in the World Series. Unfortunately, that success that he saw in 2004 he never got, at least in Major League Baseball, another MVP vote. Over the next three seasons with the Twins, Lou Ford, just an 80 OPS plus, which means he was 20% worse than a league average hitter, fell out of regular playing time. And the worst part is his worst year came in 2007, just as he was hitting free agency. And so he becomes a free agent. And ahead of the 2008 season, all he's getting are minor league deals. And he's saying, you know what? That's not enough for me. Let me take a different path. So. Ford did choose a different path. Let's go to Japan. So Lou Ford signs with the Hanshin Tigers of the MPB. But unlike a lot of American players who have gone over to either Japan or Korea, kind of resurrected their careers, played well, hit well, pitched well, and, you know, made it back to the States. Merrill Kelly is one of those guys with the Arizona Diamondbacks now who went over to the KBO for a long time and then made his way back. That wasn't how it happened for Lou Ford. He, uh... He hit 225 in 47 games in the MPB. And I don't know how much many of you know about how it kind of operates in Japan and Korea, but 
especially in Korea, but somewhat in Japan as well, you only have a certain amount of foreign players that you can have on your roster, whether that be American players, Latin players, whomever it may be. So when those foreign players, those are coveted spots, especially in Korea, when there's only three of them. In Japan, there are more. But those are coveted spots. And when a player is not performing, even in a small sample size, you just cut them loose, and most teams go to either the Mexican League or AAA in the U.S. in the middle of the season and just sign away one of those players for more money to replace them. So after 47 games, Lou Ford got the axe from the Hunchin Tigers and was probably the low point of the professional baseball career for him. He had gone from MVP votes to the MPB to getting cut from the NPB. And so he came back to the States and he said, well, last resort for many professional baseball players is independent ball. And that is where Lou Ford went. In 2009, he joined the Long Island Ducks, which is a stellar name for a baseball team. They have been around in the Atlantic League for a long, long time. And he joined the Long Island Ducks. And he impressed. He hit 330. And by the end of the year, the Cincinnati Reds came a call. And they said, let's try this guy out one more time on a minor league deal. Unfortunately, that deal came in September. He played 11 games. And the Reds did not re-sign him after putting him in AAA for 11 games. So Ford had some decisions to make. He knew he could get another minor league deal somewhere. He knew he could maybe go to Korea instead of Japan this time. But at this point, he said, let me try one more avenue. And there was the Mexican League. So in 2010, Lou Ford, who has been everywhere, man, he's been everywhere, went to the Mexican League and played well enough where the Long Island Ducks said, you want to come back home? And he said, sure. So in 2011, Back to the Long Island Ducks, he goes. Has a great year then. And in May of 2012, after about a month of the season, he had posted a 420 BABIP for the Long Island Ducks. Ooh, very nice. He finally did get another call from a major league team. But this one was different a little bit. Lou Ford had a connection to the Baltimore Orioles. He knew somebody who knew somebody who said, go take a look at Lou Ford. And so the Orioles, who were... Kind of an upstart team at this point. They were, this might sound familiar, 26 and 14 through 40 games of the season. The 2012 Orioles were trying to turn things around after 15 consecutive losing seasons. Maybe Lou Ford was the answer to finally, finally getting a winning record and finally getting back to the postseason. So they signed Lou Ford to a minor league deal. And all of a sudden, Lou Ford remembers how to hit an affiliated professional ball again. He goes to AA Bowie for a stint, goes to AAA Norfolk, and he hits 331 with a 939 OPS in AAA Norfolk. And the Orioles at the big league level were putting anyone with a pulse out in left field that year. So with Lou Ford hitting 331, this seemed like a good choice. The O's had put all their eggs in the Endy Chavez basket at the beginning of the year, and unfortunately, it was not 2006. So all the eggs in the Andy Chavez basket was not the right move. That was their left field plan. Remember, the Orioles signed Nate McClough off the street that year to play left field. They also kind of signed Lou Ford. So on July 29th, 2012, the Orioles optioned another guy to remember, right-handed pitcher Miguel Sokolovich, to AAA Norfolk, and up comes 35-year-old outfielder Lou Ford. Now, I don't have as much of a tangent about Miguel Sokolovich. I can tell you he played for a couple of other teams after the Orioles. 
The O's was actually his major league debut in 2012. I just remember him being bad. But it was good <laughs> that the Orioles optioned him to AAA. Because here comes Lou Ford. So almost five years after his last big league game, in September of 2007 with the Minnesota Twins, 1,764 days after he had last appeared in a big league game, 35-year-old Lou Ford gets the start on July 29th of 2012 on not a bad Orioles team, not a 100-loss Orioles team, but an Orioles team that would go on to win 90-plus games and get to the postseason. Lou Ford just started in the lineup. Now, he went 0 for 7 in his first two games, but the O's just kept running him out there because, again, they needed anyone with a pulse to play left field on that team, especially against lefties because they had signed Nate McLeod off the street, but he still wasn't really hitting left-handers. So they needed a right-handed hitter out there, and some of the guys they were bringing in just were not cutting it. So Lou Ford was the answer. And on July 31st, facing Ivan Nova in the third inning against the Yankees, Lou Ford doubles for his first hit back in the big leagues. Now, unfortunately, he didn't really get going. The bat never got to the 331 level that it was in AAA Norfolk. And he just kind of rode the bench. It was a platoon for a while. Nate McLeod got better and better. Lou Ford didn't, as you can imagine, at 35 years old. And so he just became kind of a, he'll play against lefties, and he'll be a nice veteran presence on the bench because he has literally seen everything you can see in the world of professional baseball, and maybe he'll help out this young upstart Orioles team. And that's what he kind of did. He homered in back-to-back games against the White Sox in August. was kind of his shining moment of the year. But then he really did have his one moment that I think placed him in the hearts of Orioles fans, which is why he's my guy and is why he's kind of a lower-level cult hero. Orioles fans. September 8th, the Yankees come in for a huge four-game series at Camden Yards. Yankees enter the series with a one-game lead in the division in September. The Orioles just had 15 losing seasons in a row, and they're one game off the Yankees in September 2012. Two days earlier was maybe the greatest regular season game in Orioles history, the Cal Ripken statue night when the Orioles blow the lead and hit three home runs in the bottom of the eighth inning to beat the Yankees, the loudest I have ever seen that crowd. And a couple days later, they win another game because Lou Ford homers off CC Sabathia in the third inning to tie the game, then drives in another run off CC in the sixth, which turns out to be the winning hit in a 5-4 Orioles victory, which at the time brought them even atop the AL East with the New York Yankees. That was enough to cement him in Orioles lore. Now, what we don't need to talk about is that Ford hit just 150 for the rest of the season after that September 8th moment in the sun. He played less and less. It was a lot of Nate McLeod. McLeod started to play against lefties as well. And Ford just wasn't playing. Now you wonder, why was a 35-year-old hitting 150, whose defense is not what it was at 25, on a playoff team? Well, A, it's September. And back then, you could have 40 players on your roster in September. So it didn't really matter. And also, Nick Markakis, unfortunately, was not there for the Orioles. Speaking of CC Sabathia, he hit Markakis on the hand with a fastball. Kind of the heart and soul of that Orioles team goes down for the rest of the season. Just a moment that still makes me tear up a bit is when he comes back out into the dugout in that game with a cast on his wrist, 
comes up to Buck Showalter. They both know what's going on. He's done for the season. Mark Hake has been an Orioles since 2006. They're finally going to get to the playoffs, and he's not going to be there. Buck just puts his arm around Mark Hakes in the dugout. Sad moment. But it's okay because the Orioles have Lou Ford still there to help out the cause. I will say that Lou Ford did not stop me from saying, Xavier, I will admit and apologize for this. Some rather rude things to you when CC Sabathia broke Nick Marquez's hand. I love CC Sabathia, and I said some rude things in, uh, in his direction as well. However, they decided to play Chris Davis in right field instead of Lou Ford, which I get having the bat in the lineup. It was an adventure out there for Chris Davis. Yes, he did start playoff games in right field that year, but you do what you got to do when Nick Marcakis goes down and you literally don't have any outfielders left. So he's on the team. He's on the 40-man roster. You play him against some lefties. It doesn't really matter. You have 40 guys. But then he kind of realized why Buck Showalter still kept him around because the Orioles make the playoffs. They get in as the final wildcard team the first year of the wildcard game in 2012. First ever AL wildcard game. And who makes that postseason roster but Lou Ford? Why? Couldn't tell you. Hugh Darvish was the Ranger starter. He's a righty. You're certainly not going to start Lou Ford. Don't really know what he brings you off the bench in that spot, hitting 150. But there he is on the roster. And sure enough, in comes Lou Ford in the ninth inning as a pinch runner for the Baltimore Orioles. And he scores a run in his appearance as the Orioles beat the Rangers 5-1 in the first ever AL wildcard game. And they're on to the ALDS. So now you're thinking, all right, they're not going to keep him around for a five-game series. But then you remember... Oh, he got two hits against CC Sabathia. The Orioles are playing the Yankees. And sure enough, Lou Ford is on the playoff roster again. Despite the Orioles losing in five heartbreaking games in the ALDS to the Yankees that year, Lou Ford went three for eight in that series, including a double. He played in four of the five games for who knows why, but he started the game against CC Sabathia. And he drove in the only run of the Orioles' game five, three to one loss. Should they have had more runs? Did Nate McLeod's shot hit the foul pole? I believe it did. The umpires thought otherwise. So Lou Ford had the only run driven in in that game. That, unfortunately for him, by making him a cult hero, would be the final MLB game he would play in, in October of 2012 in Game 5 of the ALDS. So you're thinking, O'Connor, if he played in this final MLB game in October of 2012, there's no way he's still playing professional baseball in 2023. And I'm here to tell you, yes, there is a way that he is still playing professional baseball in 2023. The Orioles re-signed him to a minor league deal the next year because you, you had to. The fans were screaming for Lou Ford. They were at FanFest knocking down the doors, calling for the Lou Ford re-signing. So they bring him back on a minor league deal. Turns out he stunk. He got demoted from AAA to AA, and he was released from Bowie at 36 years old. That is a tough spot to be in, AA at 36 years old. So he is released. And of course, who else would have him back but the Long Island Ducks? So he goes to Long Island in the Atlantic League in 2014, and he picks up right where he left off. Lou Ford, all of a sudden, is just the man on Long Island. He is every Long Islander knows Lou Ford. Atlantic League Player of the Year in 2014, hitting 347 with a 926 OPS, and his 189 hits set a single-season league record in the Atlantic League. He was the first Atlantic League player ever to play in all 140 games of the season. He did that in 2014. But here's the thing. He was a very productive player at age 37. 
but he wasn't just brought back to be a player. The Long Island Ducks signed him as an outfielder and also their hitting coach. So as Lou Ford is winning player of the year and hitting 347, he's also coaching all of his teammates. I think he was in good standing considering he was leading the entire league in hitting to say, maybe we should listen to this guy. And they did. The Ducks had some success, and Lou Ford just hung around. Every year when his one-year contract was up with the Long Island Ducks, they'd re-sign him as the hitting coach, and they'd re-sign him as an outfielder. And every year since, he continues to play. He hit 372 in 2015, close to the Atlantic League record. And then he played in 16, and 17, and 18, and 19. 2020 season was canceled, but Lou Ford was back in 2021 playing for the Ducks. And in 2022, at age 45, he still hit 270 in 32 games. So he said, you know what? Let's run it back. So at age 46, pretty much cemented as the hitting coach for the Long Island Ducks, Lou Ford re-signs again as a player as well. He is currently on the Ducks roster. This is not an expansive roster. This is a regular 25-man roster. And despite him being the hitting coach, he counts towards one of those spots. Now, Lou Ford, at time of this recording, he hasn't played a lot this year, but in nine games, he's still playing the outfield a little bit. He's mostly DHing, but he still wants to run himself out there every once in a while. In nine games and 38 plate appearances, he's slashing 235 with 316 on base, 294 slugging, two doubles and two RBIs. His power is zapped, but 235 at 46 years old in professional baseball is not too shabby. And remember, this is while serving still as the hitting coach for all his teammates. He's been doing this since 2014. You want to talk about remembering some guys. Here's the hitters on the Long Island Ducks this year that he's coaching up. Remember Adani Echeverria? Yeah, he's the shortstop. This is going to be a good list. Okay, Adani Echeverria. Now, I don't like this guy, but he is on this team. Daniel Murphy is being coached up by Lou Ford. You may remember a first baseman with no batting gloves for the Boston Red Sox by the name of Sam Travis. He is on this team as well. That one wasn't as long of a big league stint. Orioles fans out there are going to love this one. You know who Lou Ford's catcher is? None other than Chance Sisko <laughs> is on the Long Island Ducks. Orioles fans are going to love this one for a different reason. Boog Powell is on the team. No, no, no. Not the Orioles 1970 World Series champion and legend and barbecue man Boog Powell. But the younger one who played for the Oakland Athletics for a couple of years and his last name was Powell, so everyone called him Boog, and then it just stuck as his like official name on the roster. And finally, we also have Alex Dickerson, who basically played baseball always hunched over at all times in the outfield for the San Francisco Giants. All of those guys, former big leaguers, in the last couple of years, their hitting coach is Lou Ford, who's also their teammate. And I think the funny thing is, Lou Ford's probably got some say in the lineup, right? He's the hitting coach. It's independent ball. He's probably got some say. Lou Ford last played on Saturday. He's hitting 235. He's 46 years old. Stuck himself in the two hole in the Long Island Ducks order at age 46. And that right there is why Lou Ford is a baseball treasure, an Orioles legend, but above all, a guy we should all remember. So I'm, I'm going to turn to our legal department before we do anything else. Xavier, do we think his current Long Island Ducks contract status uh, affects his eligibility. Nothing in Long Island counts. It's its own separate entity. <laughs> we can ignore Long Island. 
What happens in Long Island stays in Long Island. So we will let his contract status remain there and not anywhere near our eligibility requirements. Okay, so we are we are going to discuss then Lou Ford. He is definitely still eligible. Now, Xavier, this involved a lot of negativity towards your Yankees. And so if that's a problem for you in any way, by all means, like feel free to express that now. No, no, it, it, it's fine. But um, I, I was thinking that Lou Ford feels like a discount Luke Voigt. Like I'm thinking about that 20, what was it? was the 2020 season where Luke Voigt finished in the top 10 in MVP voting that one year. And he's been on what, four different teams since then. I don't even know what he's batting right now. I think he barely plays, but it feels like Luke Voigt is already a discount of like good players. And then Lou Ford is the discount Luke Voigt. And I, I, I like that level of you're the discount version of this. Who's the discount version of this? Who's the discount version of this? And also the, you know, trying to figure out what pond you're the big fish in. It's not MLB. It's not Texas A&M. It's not the Nippon League, which we all love. It's not the Mexican League. It's Long Island. On Long Island, I am king. And I do, I do like that he just, it's always back to Long Island. I've really enjoyed that. It took a lot of different campuses, literally and figuratively, for him to find the one where he could be the big guy on campus. But you know, it, you, you keep trying until you get it. The whole boomerang bit to the Long Island Ducks is excellent. I also love this has given us a chance to bring up the name cloud foul pole homer because, once again, if I had a nickel for every time an Orioles-Yankees playoff series was decided by an incredibly questionable home run call by an umpire, I'd have two nickels. So there's that. At least you guys got your absolute asses kicked by the Detroit Tigers in the 2012 year. We got that. It is what it is. Anywho, I also like that the 2012 O's give me a second mention real quick. They finished with a 93 and 69 record. Nice. Which is also the record of the Orioles through the first 162 games of Adley Rutschman's career. And that lines up so well with what 2012, I think, was. It's, It's the year after a pretty uplifting end to an otherwise miserable period and you've got this this hot young catcher at the center of this veteran team coalescing a charismatic black center fielder kind of leading the team is the heart of it and to to get to think about that now in this new era lou ford is certainly i think a good avatar for the namelessness the reason he got all that left field spot was also because of the absence of one of the most primary guys in this hall, which is Nolan Rymel, very first one ever discussed, uh, or at least on an aired episode of this very first guy to ever win a category. Nolan Rymold left the door open for Lou Ford, and it would be very funny to me if Nolan Rymold, then also from inside the hall, left a door open for Lou Ford to just sneak in. Lou spelled L-E-W also. We have not given a moment of, of how silly that is. We don't need Luke Voigt. We have Luke Voigt at home. He is truly Luke Voigt at home. <laughs> One final piece that I'm going to offer in Diaz's absence is I think we would be hugely remiss if, in talking with his NPB time, we did not acknowledge that he is, in addition to everything else, a Hanshin Tigers legend. And I know that'll warm the cockles of Diaz's heart as he recovers from several sports tragedies recently for him. So... With that, I think, Xavier, unless you have any further dissent, there seems to be no problem with Lou Ford striding right on through that door opened by our good friend Nolan Rival. Do you want to do the honors or shall I this week? You know, I'll I'll do it. Um, This is just the next step in eventually having 
every member of the 2012 Orioles in our illustrious Hall of Guy. But this week, we would like to give a warm welcome to Orioles legend, Long Island legend, Dallas Baptist legend, Lou Ford. Welcome to the Hall of Guy. CC Sabathia, killer. Let's make sure to get that sober head in there. <laughs> Absolutely owns CC Sabathia lifetime. I don't want to look up whether or not that's true outside of this very brief year. I think the best part is his name could also be the name of any car dealership you pass in the Midwest. <laughs> I mean, that's what he's going to go into in Long Island afterwards. Or he's going to be a Long Island car salesman. In he's his avoiding life it. That's ooh, why he ooh, keeps what, being what, a player What coach. brand, what make and model is he going to sell? Is he going to sell Hondas, Kias, Toyotas? What, what I mean, it's going to be confusing if he doesn't sell Fords. Like, yeah. Lou Ford Chrysler just does not roll off the tongue very well. That's but it's saying, more, it's more funny if it's Lou Ford Kia. Lou Ford Kia actually does get Lou Ford Kia. Yeah, sure. Lou Ford is now the number one Kia salesman in Long Island by the time you all are hearing this because we are recording ahead of time. But we want to thank our good friend and returning guest, Connor, for joining us. Connor, if people enjoyed your musings on the Orioles, as I understand, it can be heard every day. Where would that be heard? Yeah, that would be the Locked on Orioles podcast, five days a week, Monday through Friday, about 30-minute episodes, perfect for your commute into work, potentially, if you still are a person who goes into the office like I do. But uh, you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts, also on YouTube, and we're on Twitter at Locked on Orioles, where I get yelled at by a large variety of different people uh, yelling about a large variety of different things, but you can join in there as well. What I like about the comment section of Orioles Twitter is you can hear the accent every once in a while. <laughs> you can hear them saying O's just it, through the internet, man. It carries. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And it's been wonderful having you here. Xavier, it has been wonderful having you keep me company while we wait for Diaz to return next week, which he will. Until then, we want to also thank producer Greg and all the programmers behind it, Don Ham for our lovely theme music, and you, dear listener, for joining us. And we do hope you join us again next week as we move on from the Udonis Haslam of the Long Island Ducks to the winding down portion of our season here. Until then, I've been James. I've been Xavier. I've been Connor. Y yo soy Diaz desde Morovi, Puerto Rico. Y como dijo un boricua muy famoso. Que vive Puerto Rico, Guy Brown. I was looking up how to pronounce Brandon Stewart's wife's last name because it's X A R G A Y. I was like, it's Spanish. Is it a Z or is it a H? That feels very much to me like the Elon Musk Grimes child's name. But, uh, so I'm looking it up. I'm like, okay, WNBA did put out a press release with the pronunciation Z A R hyphen G A Y. Well, good so for that. Like Zarge. Okay, great, great. This is good to know. <laughs>